I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. The podcast where two best friends and comedians say whatever they want. And we spare nobody's feelings, so we try to come at it with empathy. But if you don't like that, this is your chance to escape. If you want to know what is inside of a celebrity memoir and only what's inside of the celebrity memoir, you could read that memoir. But if you want to know what's inside of it without opening it, you're subject to our opinions. And they're coming. They're coming at you like a train. A train that burst through the screen and everyone in the theater was scared because, baby, we are talking about the early days of television. Yeah, this is that 1930s tragedy where all of those theater goers died (laughs) from a train onslaught. I think they call it the trolley problem. They do. They said it was a real problem when we killed all those theater goers. Anyway... This episode is brought to you by Magic Mind. Thanks to Magic Mind for supporting our podcast. Magic Mind is the world's first productivity drink that helps you fight off stress and keeps you dialed in, not wired. Go to magicmind.co slash worm and use the code worm at checkout for 20% off. Amazing. And as always, if you want to see us live, we have a weekly Thursday show in Williamsburg, 7 p.m. at Nikki's Unisex. We also sold out our first ever live show, also in Williamsburg. We will be coming to other towns soon, but we still have standing room available. So if you want to come the day of, there will be standby tickets to purchase at the door. We're so excited to see you. And also, of course, if you love this podcast, we really, really, really appreciate five-star reviews. And I will be thanking our five-star reviewers at the end of the episode. And if you just want to connect with your fellow worms, we've got the wormhole on Facebook. Just look up the wormhole. It's a closed group, but we accept everybody. Yes. And it's also linked in the show notes. I honestly love it there. There are some really fun conversations about truly every single topic under the damn sun. And now, Ashley. Yes, Claire. Without further ado, what would you have called this last week in your memoir? I would have called it the dog days are over. Or are they just beginning? What does that phrase mean? It's a bad thing. I feel like it's tricky because your dog days are your best days, but most people's dog days are like bad. Okay, so the bad days are over because now there is a dog in my life and her name is Bug and she is the tiniest, squishiest bug that anyone's ever seen. I like to come in in the morning when I let her out of her crate. I say, God, there's a bug in my house. (laughs) She laughs. (laughs) Anyway, we are getting along swimmingly. I love her so much. I do feel an intense longing in my heart. Every time I'm away from her, I want to just die, but I can't die because I had to come home and take care of her. If I die out in the street, then no one will be home to let her out and do the bug joke that she loves so much. And okay, I read this article about not giving your dog separation anxiety, like things you can do to make sure your dog doesn't get separation anxiety. So I've been trying to leave her for a couple hours each day, but I have separation anxiety. I get the sweats when I'm away from her. I'm just like, for the love of God, she needs to like come in and give me a treat to let me know she's okay. (laughs) Anyway, Claire. Yes. If you were to describe your last week's memoir chapter, what would you title it? Bangin'. Ooh, you getting fucked? (laughs) I feel like I also became a mother this last week, just like you did, but to something much more time consuming, which is I got bangs. Yeah, that is harder. I will say Layla Nations cuts my hair at Color in Williamsburg if you're looking for a hairdresser and she does a really good job every time, I think. And if you think my hair looks like shit, then I guess, sorry. I think your hair looks really nice. (laughs) Thanks, but I will say they're actually not, like she cut them, they just dry the way I want them to. Wow. I feel like really proud of myself because... I have a big forehead. That's just my cross to bear and it's really tough and it's why my life is harder than other people's. I will say I think it's like a cross that you built. (laughs) 
I don't know how to explain it. Like, I don't think that you have an alarmingly big forehead by any means. Like, you definitely don't have a forehead that, like, stops me in my tracks. And I think, like, my God, that's a forehead. (laughs) But you talk about it so often that I know of you as someone with a big forehead. Anyway, people have always said, well, why don't you just get bangs to cover it up? And in my heart, I've been like, I can't get bangs. That would be lying. And I've had this like imposter syndrome fear that because I have this giant flaw on my face, I have to own up to it all the time. And then I, I always had this fear. If I got bangs, I'd be like catfishing people, IRL. And then, you know, I'd get married and have a baby. And then the father would look at the baby and go, where the fuck did this forehead come from? And this wasn't in the lineage. And I'd go, it was me. It's been hiding here the whole time, right in plain sight behind the bangs. You never looked behind the bangs. Like that woman whose head fell off when she took off her necklace. Yes. <laughs> That'd be me with the bangs. I'm like, I've been ugly this whole time. Your husband would fall off when you took off your bangs. <laughs> but I finally said, you know what, Claire, that's the thing you made up in your head. It You're is. allowed to have bangs. You are allowed to have bangs. Just like men are allowed to have beards. Oh, mm, see, ah, oh, God, the hypocrisy. I actually don't think they are. If they have <laughs> See, I'm living, like, I do stand by what I believe. But I think I looked at Dakota Johnson. I was out in LA and a lot of the girls had bangs. And I just said, I'm going to go for it. And when I meet somebody new, I will just explain to them the forehead situation. <laughs> And it doesn't have to take up a ton of time. It's okay. (laughs) Anyway, I just feel like the bangs are new. It's completely changed who I am as a person. Anyway, should we get into this week's episode? You guys, this week we are going back. And when I say back, I mean way back, okay? We have talked about a number of celebrities on this podcast. We've talked about reality stars, television stars, film stars, musicians. Have we ever talked about someone who was around before all of that. <laughs> Before music had ever been laid to the radio. One guy banged on a pan and was like, is this something? And everyone was like, no. Pause it. Let's wait till there's strings. I would actually stop you right there and be like, Ashley, come on. It's a bit hacky to be like, Betty White was alive before music, but she actually started working when TV was invented. So she was there pre-advent of TV. That's what I'm trying to say. Like, She literally joined the radio actors union before there was like a radio and television actors union because there was no reason to unionize television because no one was on television because there was no television so to cut to the chase ever heard of betty white (laughs) betty marion white was born january 17th 1922 She was not born in L.A., but she was raised in L.A. She graduated from Beverly Hills High School. And out the gate, she always knew she wanted to be a performer. She did a theater program at one point and just caught the bug. She knew that that's all she wanted to do for the rest of her life. However, she writes, there was a bit of an altercation happening in our country around the time that she graduated high school. And that was a World War II. The book starts with three introductions. And I think that that's important. So she was born in 1922. This book originally came out in 1995 and then was republished with an added intro and outro in 2010. And even that didn't carry her through the end of her career. I mean, she just had to keep going back in and being like, by the way, I'm still working. (laughs) It is so interesting to me that she just republished this book instead of writing a second book. I feel like her career from 1995 to 2010 even, I mean, obviously further than that, could have been its own three more books. I mean, she really does say, introduction to this edition. When I wrote this book in 1995, the original idea was to revisit those earliest days of television while I could still remember them. I figured I would soon be forced to pack in my career, not by choice, but because I had been around so long. Who could have dreamed at that time, 15 years later, I would still be hanging in there, busier than ever. How lucky can an old broad be? And then she goes through everything she did in those 15 years, and it was so much. I mean, everything from bringing down the house to the proposal, Lake Placid, you again, 
She got to host SNL. And then they did Hot in Cleveland. And then she ends it and goes, so that catches us up from where the book left off. Now I can only hope you will read the book and see what went before. Thank you with all my heart, Betty White. One thing that you can really feel seeping through the pages of this book is intense gratitude. It's so beautiful how much she's constantly like, can you believe it? Me on television again? I already got to be on television and they were just going to let me be on television more. I mean, she's so funny in this intro. She talks about how she was in the pilot for Hot in Cleveland, but she told them, she's like, look, I'll be in one episode, but I can't be a series regular. And then it gets picked up and she was like, fine, I'll do a couple episodes. And then she ends up being in every episode and then the next season gets picked up for 20 episodes. And she goes, strong character that I am, I wound up doing all 10. As a topper, TV Land just picked us up for 20 more episodes. And guess who's doing all 20? I must be making all this up. I mean, she is just like, still out here. I mean, I just want to let you guys know, put you at ease. Betty White is everything you want her to be in this book. This is not our typical takedown. I left like almost in tears. And it's not a sad book or anything. It was just sweet. It's so sweet. It like makes you cry a little bit. It's just a really beautiful tale of a woman who got to live her dream life every day for a hundred years. Literally. <laughs> so after that, she gets into the introduction. And what's so funny is the book is called Here We Go Again. And you would assume that's because this was not her first book. She like had written multiple other books before or even something about the fact that she republished it. But it's about the internet. She like has this intro and outro about how she's like, there's this thing coming and it's called the super highway of information. And I went to an all day seminar at UCLA and she's like, you can't believe the things that they think are going to come out of this internet. And she's like, it reminds me of television when television was born. So here we go again. The title of this book is a reference to this idea that this new medium is about to shake everything up in entertainment. It's true. It sounds ridiculous and like a little bit silly, but it is a perfect analogy. But this book is almost 300 pages and it doesn't come up again until the outro. And then she goes, anyway, the internet's here. <laughs> it's so cute. Listen, there are parts of this book that get clunky. Okay. There are moments that are a little bit long, a lot of explanation about things you don't need explained. And it is one of those things where it's like, just shut up and let your grandma tell her impressive stories. She has experienced so much. And she is gifting you with this information. You will shut your mouth and listen. And a lot of it is fascinating, but there are definitely parts where I'm just like, all right, thank you. So that's the intro. And then there's a third intro called the before word where she talks about her upbringing. And basically she just says, as an only child, I lucked into the best parents ever invented. They adored each other. And perhaps I should have let them enjoy that a little longer. But through no fault of my own, I showed up 11 months to the day after Tess and Horace White were married. They didn't seem to hold it against me because they made me very welcome and dealt me in on everything from the very beginning. So she talks about just like she had a great childhood. She loved them so much. She wanted when she graduated high school to become an opera singer. But she's like, unfortunately, my voice would not let me. And she's like, I thought I could kind of beat it into submission. And she's like, nope, it turns out you can't. <laughs> and then, like I said, World War II happened. So that took up some time. It was one of those moments where I don't know if you guys know about World War II. Everyone kind of had to get involved. For four years, she worked with the AWVS, which is American Women's Voluntary Services, and she worked with the troops stationed by L.A. She had a long-distance bow that she broke up with via Dear John letter, and then she married some other guy that I just looked up. She doesn't name him, but his name was Dick Barker. They were divorced in six months. Looks like she was barking up the wrong dick. But that kind of turned her off marriage for a bit. She continued to pursue her acting career. She like found this 
acting troupe in LA for $50 a month. And you would pay for this acting workshop and then you could audition for their plays. And so she did the workshop. She auditioned for the play. She got a role. And then they said, next month, we want you to come be in the play, like next month's play. And you don't even have to pay for the workshop next time. And she was like, oh my God, can you believe it? They were going to let me work for free. So she does that and then she gets the bug and this is the heyday of radio. So she spends those early days just making the rounds in her little outfits, going to each radio station, asking if they needed any voice actors for that week. That was just kind of how you had to do it. You just went to each place and say like, hey, how how are things going? You need anybody? And they'd be like, no. And she also was not in the union because it's the same issue we have to this day where you can't really join the union until you have a credit, but you can't get a credit until you're in the union and people just like, keep running around in the same circle and then finally she was in the elevator and she meets someone who's like I'll give you one line on this radio show to say in the commercial so that you can get in the union and he's like you're not even gonna break even but she called her dad her parents are so supportive you can't even believe it it was gonna cost $69 to join the union she made thirty-seven fifty for the line that she had to say in the show the word was parquet she had to say it twice <laughs> She made $37.50. It cost $69 to join the union. I called my dad and asked if he would loan me the difference and bless him. He was almost as excited as I was. Sure, honey, if you don't work too often, we can almost afford it. Daddy lucked out. Today, that initiation fee is $800. And today, that initiation fee is $3,000. So things things escalate. It gets expensive to work. (laughs) (laughs) So then she's off to the races. She's taking any job she can. She's in some little movie. And she's like the best friend of this woman who lives outdoors. And she tells this funny story about how first she was the actor. And they're like, well, could you also help with the script? And she was like, okay. And they're like, could you also do hair and makeup? And she's like, okay. And then they had a baby bear on scene. And the wrangler was like a drunk. And they're like, well, could you help wrangle the baby bear? And she was just like, okay. My God, the days before film was organized. It's crazy that this was like, I think, a big production that had the main actor as also a bear wrangler. So at that time, she had met this guy named Lane, who was a failed actor turned agent. Wouldn't you believe it? They've been around for 100 years, who fell in love with her at a play she had done and wanted to marry her. And she kept saying, no, I'm not interested in being married. I've been married once. I got out of that. I'm not having any more of it. She broke up with him so that she could go do this bear wrangling gig. And after six weeks, she came home to him having sent her like a beautiful record with roses and a note. And she finally gave it and said, fine, I'll marry you. Then she gets the opportunity to sing on television. So television is starting to cook up. There's a few channels that are experimenting with a few different things. And she gets a call asking if she can sing. And she says yes. She also says the cardinal rule of trying to make it as an actor is just say you can do anything. She could sing. Like she was trying to be an opera singer. She wasn't opera level singing, but she was at one point hoping to become a singer someday. So she wasn't just like lying out of her ass when she said she could sing. So she sings on television. She doesn't get paid for it. She says, Mr. Landis carefully explained that a guest appearance like this didn't involve any fee. It was an opportunity to be seen on television. A wonderful showcase. Man, it's so crazy how the more things change, the more they stay the same. There's so much shit where they're like, I don't know, would you turn down this opportunity? Of course, we can't pay you for your work, but it's really a good exposure. But it did work exposure-wise. So from that, she got her next gig called Grab Your Phone, which was certainly not the first game show on television, but one of many. It was a game show where you could call in the trivia answer and three girls manned the telephones and she was the one that he riffed with. So she was the only girl who was allowed to talk. And she's like, he paid me $25 
a week and told me not to tell the other girls because they were making less because they didn't have to talk. And she's like, I mean, maybe they were making 30. Like I said, the more things change, the more they say the same. Women being encouraged to never discuss salary. <laughs> yeah, so that nobody knows that they're getting dicked over. From that gig, she gets invited to be my girl Friday, which is this man, Al Jarvis, who was a huge radio jockey at that time in L.A., was starting a five and a half hour long live television program, which was going to be essentially just him playing radio, but they would talk in between each record. So he hires her. He wants her Monday through Friday. It's going to be five and a half hours of live TV. Five hours. I actually think it started a little bit shorter Then it was five. Then it was five and a half. Yeah, but it was a lot of fucking time. And the first week they do it, they play all these records and then they would chat in between. And during the records, they would talk, but you could only hear the music. And the immediate feedback was, we want to hear what they're saying when the music is on. So the music got cut altogether and it became just five hours of them shooting the shit five days a week. And then like pausing to read commercials. So yeah, they don't cut to commercial. They cut to Betty saying the commercials and the ads. And they like talk about how they had to have a certain amount of sponsors for the episodes. And a lot of times they would run long on the ad copy. And so then by the end, it was like the last half hour of the show. And they were just reading ads <sighs> for 30 minutes for the sponsors to get their money worth. She was so excited because the job paid $50 a week. What do you say? Television was not yet covered by any union. There was no such thing as scale. Salaries were determined at the discretion of the employer. My mind suddenly went into slow motion. My answer was mostly gasping for breath. Had this been an audition, I would have flunked ad-libbing. There was a sense of total unreality. Five hours a day, $50 a week, every week. How I finally responded or how the rest of the conversation went, I have no idea. I guess eventually it must have percolated through my thick skull that this wasn't some kind of practical joke. It was all really true. I had no way of knowing that my lifelong love affair with television had just begun. It's also interesting that as her career hits its first stride, this moment is when her marriage starts to deteriorate. She says, I didn't believe it was possible to try and have a successful career as well as a married slash family life and expect to do justice to either one. There are some outstanding examples to the contrary. So let me clarify by saying I just don't feel it's feasible to start them at the same time and still expect to give full attention to both. So it became pretty clear that Lane, even though he met her as she was pursuing her dreams, he like didn't really expect that to be a thing. Yeah, she says early on in our relationship, Lane and I had spent countless hours on that very subject discussing the inherent problems in a two-career family. That's why they had initially gone on that break because she's like, well, this is what I'm going to do. So if you're not okay with it, I'm leaving. He thought he would be okay with it, but she's like, from the beginning, it was obvious that he wasn't thrilled. The show ends up getting picked up. They also add a Saturday episode. Because of Al's radio show, which was still thriving, we didn't go on the air until 12.30. This was an ideal work schedule for me since it meant I could get my household chores done in the morning and still make it to the studio by 11. That gave me time to dab on a little makeup. We did our own in the beginning, such as it was, and go over any last-minute ideas that Al may have come up with. We would sign on at 12.30 and never come up for air until we signed off at 5.30. This allowed me to get home in time to get dinner underway before Lane came in. I can't believe that she was on the air for five hours, no breaks. And then also keeping the house. When it turns out it's a hit, her salary is upped to $300. And she says, many years have gone by since that brief meeting, filled with more good fortune than any human could possibly hope for in an uncertain chosen profession. But not once in all that time has anything work connected, award, prize, contract renewal, increased income, you name it, ever meant to me as much as Al's unsolicited gesture of approval that night. But in real life, everything was on a fairly even keel. The $300 a week seemed to have quelled any qualms that Lane may have felt about the added work schedule. To be sure, things were just okay at home. I didn't want to dig too deeply into that department. So, you know, her career is taking off. Things are going great. She's on air five and a half hours, six days a week, and making more money than I think she ever thought she'd ever make. 
but things at home are quaky. Yeah, so the show was called Hollywood on television, and boy, oh boy, were they on television. It premiered October 1949. Very quickly, it was a fan hit, and so it went from being five hours, five days a week, to five and a half hours, six days a week. At that point, her salary was bumped up to $300, which was incredible for her. Yeah, she says that she was brought into a meeting that she thought she was going to get fired in. And she was like, all right, I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry. And then they told her that her salary was being bumped up from $50 a week to $300 a week. And she cried. And she says, people go, wasn't that exhausting? And in all honesty, I have to admit, no, it wasn't at all. Another really funny anecdote that she throws in here, because she was the one reading all the ads during the Hollywood on television show, she would like sell herself on all of these products. I was worse than any classic pigeon I would buy from myself. No discounts, mind you, full price. You know what it actually kind of reminds me of? What? Instagram or like TikTok celebs. Yeah. The idea that you could have an audience of like 100,000 people, but you're still working in a deli. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like there is something very, she's still one of us. And actually Al Jarvis, her boss, gave her advice. And I feel like it's such good advice. He does give her really good advice about relating to the audience. Yeah, he's like, never talk above them or below them. Never do a joke on screen that the audience isn't in on. And she's like, I would never in my life laugh about something that they couldn't understand. Not that like, not that it's intellectual art, but never bring your inside jokes to the screen unless you can include them. And then also he says, without saying it explicitly, the audience should always feel as if you took the bus to work. We do that thing still where when someone feels like relatable and just discovered, we love them. And then as soon as they're like on their high horse, all dolled up for the Oscars, we're just like, fuck you. Go back to where you came from. (laughs) Jennifer Lawrence, which is like an Abercrombie catalog. Even this book is kind of a great example of how she still holds those tenets to be true because she explains every inside joke. Yeah. (laughs) She explains every funny moment of friendship. But She's so excited about the money she's making. And then as soon as I think it crosses into a threshold of wealth, wealth, like today money, like Golden Girls syndicated money, she stops bringing it up altogether. And she never makes a mention to how rich they were. She really does explain every inside joke. She says one time she was doing an ad for some sort of water spout and she forgot the word faucet. And she said, soapy water comes out your gizmo. And she, I think, still thinks that that's one of the funniest things that's ever happened. And I will say soapy water coming out of your gizmo is really funny. <laughs> she did a good job. I laughed. Thank you, Betty. So the show grows and grows. They add additional cast of characters who traipses through. And then they add, in addition, a one-hour Saturday night show that's supposed to be the Betty White show that Al Jarvis kind of crashes and makes the Al Jarvis hour. That's essentially Star Search. Regular amateurs get to come and perform. Yes, they do a talent show and whoever wins gets to come on the Hollywood on television show the next week. And then Al Jarvis leaves the show and she seems pretty heartbroken about it. He blames his wife who apparently is like, no, you have to go to a different network and do something with me, not Betty. And Betty's like, listen, I don't know if he just used her as an excuse or what, but it was a bummer when he left. They replaced him. And not only did they replace him, but they keep the Al Jarvis hour on Saturday that returns to the Betty White show. And then they add a sitcom. Okay. I will also say during this time, they added television to the American Federation of Radio Artists. So now it was the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, which we still know today as AFTRA. 
And because they were introducing a union, they had to create like a standard of pay. And because their show was on 36 hours a week, they were like, I just don't know what to do. So they ended up coming up with their own kind of scale. And her salary went to $400 a week, increasing year by year. If they had gone for seven years, she would have been making $750 a week. Which is an amount of money I have made living in New York City, I think. $750 a week. I mean, I actually will say my first job that I had in Los Angeles paid me under the table $450 a week. My first full-time job in New York, I was making $23,500. <laughs> what does that average out to a week? That's $451 a week. Oh my God, I was as rich as Betty. You were richer than me. <laughs> She also talks about trying to stay humble despite being a television star. And one of the things, this was local, but she was one of the only people on television. I wonder what it was like, like if it was a huge fucking deal, like if people cared about TV stars like they do now. Oh, well, actually, she says, going from obscurity to high profile local success is heady wine. We've all seen sad cases of what happens when young people begin believing their own publicity and assuming their good luck will be a permanent way of life. Between my folks, Al Jarvis, I was steered away from that trap. Often, I'm sure, I was probably a royal pain in the derriere, but they were benevolent dictators and never was I allowed to be boss. I was always too busy just trying to keep up. I think about that sometimes. Who's my watchdog today? My folks are gone, as is Al. My husband, Alan, always my benign critic, is gone. Friends mean well, but aren't reliably objective, and they have a tendency, I suspect, only to tell me what I want to hear. The fact that I have lived a long time doesn't mean that I'm any better at self-appraisal than anyone else. As time goes by and I find my acceptance has increased, I realize, and it's a chilling thought, that there is no governor on the accelerator and my ego is at the wheel. I try to keep that very much in mind at all times. I think that's the same thing, though, as, like, narcissism, where it's just, like, if you're scared that you're a narcissist, you're probably not. Like, if she's sitting here being like, there's no one to keep my ego in check, what shall I do? She's probably fine. No, I mean, she seems so sweet. <laughs> if she's not, I mean, luckily, we'll never know. <laughs> luckily, she's dead, so we'll never know. I'm so sorry, Betty. Please, if you're up there, if you're listening, please don't be mad at me for saying that. I don't think that anyone has ever had a bad word to say about her. And people love to say bad words about people. So she ends up taking over Hollywood on television. But she says, at home, things were deteriorating fast. The faint warning bell I spoke of had grown consistently louder and had finally sounded a death knell for the marriage. Lane at last had to admit that he simply couldn't handle having a wife with a career. In spite of all of his earlier denials, I'm sure he had a more conventional family picture in mind. And in all honesty, I knew I couldn't promise to change and make it stick. It's a familiar story, but oh, such a painful one. So then they come to her and ask if she wants to do a evening sitcom as well. And she's like, on top of my day job, which is five and a half hours a day on television. Plus a Saturday night Al Jarvis hour. She's like, I think I could handle it. And she talks about them just deciding to do a show. She had her friend George write it. She says there was no team of lawyers, agents, managers, representatives, or spouses. Just three people saying, let's go for it. So they come up with the show Life with Elizabeth, which is like three sketches over the course of half an hour because my contention was that if you try to stretch the anecdote into half an hour, the joke wears thin. History has proven just how smart I was. A half hour situation comedy would never work. It sounds like a really cute little show. The premise was they were newlyweds and Elizabeth was a bit daffy and there was like an omniscient narrator who whenever Elizabeth acted badly would go, Elizabeth, aren't you ashamed? And she would go, no. Her life was so busy, but sounded so fun. I know. She sounded like she was having a great time. I also just can't get over the way that a half-hour sitcom was just like a random side gig that they did in the afternoons. I mean, they syndicated it live like a play. They wouldn't even tape anything back then. They just broadcasted shows. And she says when they did start taping things, they had no concept that they should keep them and re-air them at some point. They would just tape stuff, air it, and then erase the tape. 
So there's a lot of early television that you just can't find anywhere because it was erased immediately. So eventually, Life with Elizabeth gets syndicated and moves to NBC. Yes. They cancel Hot and give her The Betty White Show, which is going to be a half-hour show every day, five days a week. And then NBC goes, if I thought I could bear the strain of doing a half-hour sitcom with a half-hour show every day. And she goes, well, after doing five and a half hours, six days a week for four years, I wondered secretly what I would do with all the extra time. She also is one of the early days stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. She says they just gave it to her, unlike today, when you had to pay $3,000, which today... It's 50000 I feel like today someone who is successful enough to get that start... $50,000 is like a drop in the bucket, but it still feels weird that you really have to like shell out a fuck ton of money for your own honor. The Betty White show was essentially a daytime talk show. They had variety acts, they had music, they had sketches, they had whatever she wanted. And it seems like it was just so much fun. She would wake up at 4.15. Her parents would wake up with her every morning, make her breakfast. Because she had gotten divorced, she moved back in with her parents in Brentwood. So they would wake up, give her breakfast, drive her to work, and then her mom would go right back to bed. I guess she would get there by 6 a.m. for her makeup call. They would do her makeup, a rehearsal, shoot the show live at 12. They would wrap up by 12.30, think of ideas for the next day, and then go home. And then she would drive straight to Life with Elizabeth to film the sitcom for next week. And she's like, sometimes I worked so late that I would drive straight from one show to the other show, (laughs) like the next morning at 6 a.m. But she was so happy. And here's a little... Betty White isn't just a nice old lady, but like a great person. One of the people she had on the show as a regular was Arthur Duncan, the wonderful black song and dance man. It came as a frightfully ugly surprise one day when a few of the stations that carried our show throughout the South notified us that they would, with deep regret, find it most difficult to broadcast the program unless Mr. Arthur Duncan was removed from the cast. I was shocked, and it goes without saying that Arthur continued to perform on our show as often as possible. To its credit, the network backed us up. I was livid. This was in 1954, for heaven's sake. I wanted to tell them what to do with their stations, but wiser heads prevailed. To no one's surprise, that was the last we ever heard of the matter. They continued to carry us without another word on the subject. I like have heard a lot of stories about her not ever bowing to racism or sexism or homophobia even. She did actively fight against it, and I think that that is another reason to love her. Eventually, unfortunately, the Betty White Show, too, because the first one had turned into the Al Jarvis Hour, got moved to 4 p.m. to try to help some other woman whose show was failing. Nobody could find her. They moved her back to 12.30, which was, like, closer, not the right time. And then it just got canceled. Even now, when people move shows around like that, it's annoying. But luckily, people stream most things, so it's not that big of a deal. I think that in those days, to move a show around, if people know what time they're turning a show on and they turn the TV on and it's not there, like then they're just not going to watch yeah, it Yeah, she's anymore. like, people liked eating lunch with me. Things haven't changed. The networks are still playing with their programs like Chessmen, and many a successful program has been moved only to go down in flames. I'm sure it is a necessary evil from the network standpoint, and once in a while it works or they wouldn't keep doing it. She also talks about when they went full color in the 1960s. Because NBC wanted to sell color televisions. RCA, the company who made the color televisions, owned NBC. Yes. (laughs) Very synergy. The three heats. (laughs) Getting the Betty White show canceled. She says it was her first brush with the classic showbiz rejection syndrome, but certainly not her last. She ends up taking up a kind of residency as a parade announcer at the Tournament of Roses for the Rose Bowl. And this is interesting. I think that she had a very broadcasty career back when that was kind of the only thing that was an option. I mean, she was doing a talk show. She was hosting parades on television that was like a very Katie Couric 
vibe. And then she ended up getting offered the Today Show. But she turned it down because she didn't want to move to New York. That's fair. The job ended up going to Barbara Walters and she is very kind about Barbara Walters in here. And I don't think Betty White wanted to be a serious interviewer. She likes to be interviewed. She likes to be interviewed and she loves to do goofy bits. She's more of a goofy bit doer than a interviewer. Next, she has a syndicated show called Date with the Angels, the premise of which it's like a woman who reimagines all of the embarrassing situations she gets into. I mean, there's very little extras in here, I'd say. It's a pretty firsthand, almost Wikipedia-esque account of her life. I mean, when sad things happen, she says it was sad. When happy things happen, she says I was happy. But she doesn't get super into the nitty-gritty of it all. The one place I notice somewhat of a passionate opinion comes from she must have been getting attacked in the 90s for not being feminist enough because she makes a couple comments about it. She explains the scene where she goes to a fancy man's party and makes a fool of herself and is so embarrassed. So her character reimagines the whole thing where she's like the queen of the party. And she says, the only reason I bothered to go into such detail about this ancient history is that not having thought about it in a long time, I was struck with how the exact same show would be perceived in today's climate. What a classic feminist statement of empowerment. In truth, all we were doing at the time was trying to be entertaining with no hidden agenda whatsoever. Can you just see trying to convince some future student of television of that? as he or she is busy reinterpreting our motives according to current experience. Yeah, I think she does feel really defensive about this concept of like whether or not she was a feminist trailblazer, which I think simply by existing and having this life in television and this life that wasn't led by a man, she did. By virtue of being who she is, she was paving the way for a lot of careers. But because she wasn't standing out there being like, this is what a feminist looks like, people don't count it. Yeah, she goes, we had never heard of feminism or empowerment. Vicky was simply reacting as any red-blooded American wife would in the given circumstances. I think what I get from this book is that she felt resentful. I mean, later will come up where she's actually questioned and accused of holding women back for playing such stereotypical female tropes, which is like crazy because I mean, here she is in the 40s, twice divorced, living at home, living her dreams, pursuing her career and succeeding. But I think she feels resentful of being told how bad she had had it. And I do think part of it is because when she started in TV, there was no money in it. Yeah. And so I think the sexism probably got worse as like there were bigger, you know what I mean? When there's no money, they don't really care. A woman can do it too. If we're all working for free, but yeah, I mean, I think that being the sidekick for so long, she talks a lot about game shows and the way game shows rose up within the industry And how she was never really allowed to host a game show, even though she came up with a couple ideas for them and had a few opportunities to potentially host a game show. They were just like, no, a woman cannot emcee a game show. And I think that there are moments that looking back, it's like, yeah, was that a quality? No. Was it progressive for that time? For sure. Like there was no one on television. So when she was like, what should my place be on television? She just was on. And that was a huge victory. And not because she was a woman, just because like not a lot of people were on television at the time and she was one of the more prominent people on television and she happened to be a woman. I guess by current standards, it's like, sure, maybe she could have fought harder to have the Betty White show be the Betty White show instead of the Al Jarvis hour. But also, I don't know, she was on television like 40 hours a week. I think at that point he had 20 years of experience on her. He was already a very famous radio jockey. I do think she feels angry at being told her life was bad in any way or that she was mistreated because she was, I mean, for the creation of Life with Elizabeth and uh, Date with the Angels, she was like a full equal producer. It was her production company that was named after her dog. 
Anyway, all that to say is the date with the angels, it turned out it sucked. <laughs> it got canceled season one and they had to keep tweaking it and tweaking it. And at some point they still had 13 episodes left and what they were doing did not work at all. So they changed it to the Betty White show for a third time. <laughs> and they brought in all the old cast of characters from Life with Elizabeth and all the other things that had worked in the past when they syndicated that. Then she's kind of without a job again. She goes on a game show circuit. That's just like a huge thing. You could just kind of spend a ton of time going on a fuck ton of game shows. She does take the time to explain almost every single game show, which I don't think we super need to get into. But it is important. So in the 50s, there was like game shows everywhere. And it was a celebrity paired with a rego or a rego on a team with a celebrity. But people just love to see celebrities compete and guess words and do whatever. And she would like fly to New York for a night, do two or three, go out all night with her friends, laugh. It was so much fun. I mean, it sounded like the dream. She would go. She would know everybody. And she talks about how this didn't feel like honest work. She was like, since I didn't have a day job, it just felt like I was partying. Like the fact that she was flying across the country to work so consistently, she was like, this just didn't really count. I mean, one of those nights she goes, she did a game show and then she does the Tonight Show with Jack Parr, who loved her. He invited her out for drinks afterwards. This hot celebrated veteran named Phil Cochran was in town. They went to watch jazz. They went to music clubs. They went dancing. They ended the night like eating hamburgers at PJ Clark's until until dawn, she said. And then that guy, she ended up dating him for four years. And then she just got right back on a red eye, went back to LA. Like what a fun fucking life. Could we do the Tonight Show and then party all night and eat hamburgers? I know I couldn't party all night, but I would meet you in the morning for like a breakfast burger. What if we did the Tonight Show and then I went out and then we met up again at 5 a.m. for hamburgers? I would love that. That'd be so fun. She ends up dating this guy, Phil, for a while. And she also talks about, as Ashley said, game shows were huge back then. And they ended at the end of the decade with the big game show scandal where it turned out that a lot of the game shows were cheating because you would follow somebody week to week, much like Jeopardy. And obviously the ratings went up when somebody had a compelling storyline and was charismatic and was on a roll. And when it came out that these people were being fed the answers beforehand, scandal arose. Scandal. Anyway, she also gives us a lengthy overview of a show called Password, which she really admires. It was invented by a guy named Alan Ludden. More on him later. She also gives credit to Julianne Griffin, who was married to Merv Griffin, who you may have heard of. He invented like every game show for a while. She was the person who came up with the idea for Jeopardy, where she was like, why don't you flip it around and give the answer and make them come up with the right question? And she also wrote the Jeopardy theme song. Okay, so back to Alan. She ended up doing a play one summer that Alan Ludden was in. Phil was like, I do not like that guy. And she was like, what the hell are you talking about? Everyone likes that guy. But Phil sensed that there was a spark between them. Alan was a bit in the dumps because his wife had just died. Can I just say she really does have my dream life? And that just like every season she's doing something different and cool. She's like, oh, I don't have a job right now. I guess I'll just fly to New York on a red eye every other week, do a bunch of game shows, late night shows, party with my friends, and then go home. What am I doing this summer? I don't know. She's like, I'd never been to Maine. So I went and did the play circuit in Northeast one summer. Like, what a fun way to live. To just do whatever you want all the time. It's the dream. So she starts seeing Alan a little bit. And she's also seeing Phil still. Phil had asked her to marry him once. And she was just like, no. And he was like, okay, well, you said no. So we're not going there again. And she says, I continue to see them both without getting heavily involved with either one. We were all being so tedibly civilized. It was almost funny. I do think that she's implying that she wasn't fucking. 
They were really competing for her affection. She says that one weekend in New York, her mom came to visit and they spent the weekend just like trying to impress the mom. She says, my mom had never been so spoiled. If Alan got tickets for a show one night, Phil saw to it that he got better ones the next. The same with top restaurants or special day trips. I was just along for the ride. Eventually she realizes she does like one more or the other and she has to call it off with Phil. She says she loved Phil, but she was in love with Alan. Phil flew home to Erie. Before he left, he said, you may change your mind one day. You know where I am. It was straight out of one of the old movies, as was the whole situation, which should have struck me funny. It didn't. She gets right on a plane, lands in New York City, and there's Alan waiting for her at the gate with like a whole weekend planned. Yes. He asks her to marry him a lot, and she always says no. Alan also has three children from his marriage to his first wife, who passed away from cancer. So he gets down on one knee, presents her with a gorgeous rock, she says she's not ready. So he wears the ring around his neck like a necklace to just kind of like dangle it in front of her. Finally, they get engaged. A telegram arrived from Phil. One word. Ouch. We were married June 14th, 1963. So they get married. His best friend, Grant Tinker, is married to one of her good friends, Mary Tyler Moore. They become the best couple's friends. I need to take this time to talk about how Grant Tinker is a fucking smoke show. I went down such a Grant Tinker hole of love. (laughs) A glory hole of Grant Tinker, if you will. I swear to God, even old, that man... Could stay get it. Fine. I think he starts out as an actor. He ends up becoming the chairman of NBC and overseeing the rise of the Cosby show and everything. Like he was the head of NBC when it became the number one network in the 80s. And he's so good to her. And he's so good looking. And he's so handsome. And he was married to Mary Tyler Moore. You guys, we're going to, maybe we'll do like a Grant Tinker roundup on the Instagram. He's so fucking hot. I'm in love with it. And I'm not like somebody who likes an old man, but he could. Oh, my God. He stayed hot for so long. And they didn't even have sunscreen back then. He had, like, a real Brando vibe. He, like, reminds me of, like, Gregory Peck. Do you know what I mean? He just has, like, that classically handsome with, like, a dash of Paul Newman in him. Just, like, that old school class act. Like, I don't call anybody a class act, but I'm like, God, what a man. (laughs) A man that knows how to make a salad dressing. Yeah, I mean, her and Alan Ludden, the man who invented Password, had, like, a lot of famous friends. They were also best friends with John Steinbeck and his wife, Elaine. They were really good friends with Fred Astaire's daughter, Johnny Carson, they were close with. Everyone that you've heard of, they knew well. And all they ever did was go out to dinner and have fun. It just seems like the most fun life. They're always at dinner parties and restaurants and vacations and traveling together. Despite refusing to move to New York to do the Today Show. She just absolutely did not want to move to New York. When she marries Alan, because he has three children, she does pick up and move to New York for him. She's not working on anything specific at the time. She's honestly just flying to New York all the time to do game shows. So it makes more sense for her to be in New York anyway. And they move there. Eventually, Password winds down. And he makes the call that they should maybe move to California. And she's stoked on it because she's a real California gal. While they were still living in New York, though, her dad got sick. Her mom also caught that same sickness. She flew out to California to be with them, brought her dad home from the hospital, and then he passed away at home almost immediately. He had been discharged and I guess was just not actually in good shape. Kennedy was shot that same week. It was just a real 9-11 of events. Sorry, but Stormy just released the name of her baby. Stormy had a baby? Stormy baby. (laughs) Okay, what is it? Do you want to guess? It's an alliteration. It's a word that starts with W. Windy? No. It's a boy. Oh. 
Watson. It's an animal. Walrus. <laughs> <laughs> Wolf. Hmm. I'm going to save this audio. <laughs> so after her father passed away and password wrapped up, they decided to move back to California. And she is very careful to be like, it wasn't even my call. It was the right decision for all of us. And it was Alan's idea. She also has this really sweet passage about being with Alan through the death of her father. He caught a cold flying home after the first time they had ever come to visit them at their house in Briarcliff Manor, which is in Westchester, New York. It seems a strange context, but it was during that suspended weekend that it became clear to me what marriage is all about. An incredibly slow study, I came to realize that Alan and I weren't two separate entities. We were together, sharing this grief, trying to comfort others. It finally penetrated my thick skull that we were a unit. From that day forward, any problems we had, and there were some, came from the outside. At long last, he had taught me to stop running. I think it's really beautiful that she finds this love in a fairly non-traditional way, honestly. I mean, she'd been married twice. He had been married and had three children. I think the way their family came together, especially with her realizing what marriage entails, is really nice. I think that she was from a time where you just like are supposed to get married. So she did, and it, she just kept not liking it. Until Alan. So they move back to California, and she starts doing another talk show called The Pet Set where she interviewed people and their pets. Can I say this is an incredible idea? I can't believe how much energy she had to just keep on making shows. It's almost like she was taking Magic Mind. <laughs> this week, we have teamed up with Magic Mind, and they are offering 20% off your order when you go to magicmind.co slash worm and use the code worm at checkout. You guys, I have been drinking Magic Mind in the morning with my coffee, and it is a game changer. I don't know how it works, but there are 12 functional ingredients, including matcha, nootropics, and adaptogens that basically all synergize with your insides and make you insanely productive. Magic Mind has a money-back guarantee, and they've been featured in Forbes. They were called Silicon Valley's new morning elixir, and it's just that little tiny sip that gives you an insane boost to your day. When you have one of those to-do lists that just looking at it gets you overwhelmed, a shot of magic mind just honestly is like a bullet to help you plow right through. You get so much done. You feel fresh. You feel alive. You don't get that wired feeling and the crash that comes with it. It was built to help creative people sit down and take all of those genius little ideas in your brain and make them a reality. With their money back guarantee, any first purchase can be refunded. No questions asked if it doesn't meet your expectations. Go to magicmind.co slash worm and use the code worm at checkout for 20% off. One fateful day, she gets called to be a guest star on, you may have heard of it, The Mary Tyler Moore Show. So she is brought in to play Sue Ann, who ends up becoming an iconic guest star of The Mary Tyler Moore Show. It is just insane that she got a phone call to be like, hey, do you want to come be on one of the greatest shows of all time? And she says she almost didn't get it, that they had written the script, a sweet, saccharine, Betty White type character. Somebody was like, hey, why don't you just hire Betty White? And Mary Tyler Moore was scared because they were friends that if she came in to audition for it and didn't get it, it would be tough. And Betty's like, I don't care. Just let me try. <laughs> so after they auditioned 10 different people, nobody was good enough. And finally, Renee, who was the head of casting, said, just give the part to Betty. It's only a one shot. And she's been around long enough that she won't hurt you. Renee, I can never thank you enough. She ended up winning an Emmy for that role. I think more than one. I think she was nominated two years in a row. Yeah. And then she just talks about how incredible it was to make the Mary Tyler Moore show together. It, it seems like never since and never until had they had such incredible chemistry. 
She said the final week of the show, everybody was just crying the whole time. And the writers couldn't even write the last scene down for fear it would be too emotional and set everybody out of Oh my sorts. God. <laughs> that is so beautiful. Oh, and the first year she won the Emmy, Alan actually also won an Emmy for being the host of Passwords. They won the Emmys together that year. I know. This is one of my favorite lines in the book. She says, we flew to Hawaii the next day for a week's vacation. We could have made it without the plane. Oh, they were flying so high. It's just the sweetest line. I was talking to my dad this morning and he asked if she had a ghostwriter. And I was like, honestly, I don't. I mean, she probably had like a heavy handed editor helping her. I mean, I wouldn't say this book is so well written that like nobody is written. But that's as, what I mean. Yeah. It's like written as I feel like she would talk. I think she would have had a, she had a researcher. Yeah. My guess is she had somebody who like went through her IMDb and was like, do you remember this? Do you remember that? Do you remember this? And I think she had somebody help her interview her own friends. I feel like she had someone write down all the bullet points and then she like made sentences around the bullet points. Yeah. After Mary Tyler Moore, she ended up becoming a staple character in that show. Mary Tyler Moore wanted to end the show after seven seasons because her passion was dance. She loved to dance. It called to her. And they were doing spinoffs for everybody. There were a ton of spinoffs from the Mary Tyler Moore show. They talked about doing one with Betty White's character. And then not all the spinoffs were performing that well. And they came up with a couple different ideas and were like, actually, what if we just do a different show with Betty White? So her spinoff was just another show. It was the Betty White show, a fourth. (laughs) I don't know if there's some sort of curse with being the Betty White show, but once again. It got canceled after a season, but she was nominated for an Emmy for it. Which happens to her twice. She's in two shows that by the time she's nominated for an Emmy, it's, it's been gone. canceled. I feel like that's not uncommon with television. She also says she became friends with Johnny Carson and they would often do bits together. And her marriage to Alan was big in his monologues. And the jokes were always like, when Alan and Betty shower together, they play Password. Or Betty and Alan threw a wife swapping party and nobody showed up. He would often give offbeat examples of what an egghead Alan was and how square our marriage must be. But she took the joke. She's like, people would always be like, you must be so mad at him. Or they'd be mad at him on their behalf. And she was like, I don't care. It's funny. I think that she just seems down as hell. Like, I think she's a good actress. And I think that she's just always ready and always willing to work hard. But I think she's up for anything. She does a couple bits with Johnny Carson. She ends up doing a lot of skits at the beginning of the show with him. As well as being a guest, she just comes on for random things. And some of them are insane. At one point, they do this dinner where they get washed away by waves. And she just is on Johnny Carson soaking wet. Like, she'll do stunts. I also feel like she just has such a gratitude for being in the game. Like every year she's like, wow, I can't believe I'm still here. And so she's like, all right, if the way I'm in it is like Johnny Carson's teasing me on TV. Great. Keep my name in your mouth. So around this time, they buy a house up in Carmel and they find out that Alan is very sick. He's not feeling well for quite some time. No one can figure out what's wrong with him. And finally, he has a surgery to just see what's wrong. And they find out that he has really late stage cancer that spread very far and they give him a few months to live. This is the only story where Betty is like angry. She says while they were in the hospital, people kept coming up to her and being like, is that really Betty White? I mean, it's one nurse who is treating her husband who says, aren't you Betty White? And then later as they're leaving, the same nurse had the guts to shove a piece of paper at me saying, can I have your autograph? I hope I never again come that close to striking another human being. And she talks about how she can barely even watch doctor shows now because she thinks that that type of event would be like comedic relief. And she says the memory just makes her sick. It's really the only time we ever see anger from her. And it's one of the only fan interactions we get in the whole book. She just seems so grateful, except for that moment. She's like, what the fuck was that? Coming on the heels of the Tommy Lee memoir, I definitely think 
If you see a celebrity in a hospital, leave them alone. Yeah. It's not the time. They don't tell anybody about his stomach cancer. They want to keep it a secret so he can live as normal of a life as possible. But very early on the morning of June 9th, Alan lost the battle five days short of our 18th wedding anniversary. I mean, she goes into a period of mourning. Grant, the love of my life, was there and just treated her as well as could be. Alan was in downtown L.A. for the last three or four weeks of his life. And even though Grant worked in Burbank, he went to visit Alan every single day in the hospital. And Alan would say, what are you doing here, Grant? He'd go, oh, I'm just in the neighborhood. He, w- he was like an hour away every day, but he would drive to see him. And right after Alan passed away, Grant went and spent the afternoon at Betty's house. And she said, I had no idea that that morning he had accepted his role as chairman of NBC and that he had meetings to go to that night. And she's like, he came and did not make me feel stressed or hurried or anything. And later when she found out what had happened and how busy he was that day. Grant stopped me with, hey, if I can't figure out my own priorities, I shouldn't take the job. I mean, is that not the hottest thing you've ever heard? She says, the quality time that Alan and I had together, even after we became aware of what was in store, is something for which I will be eternally grateful. My mother had been given no such cushion. Many women aren't. And how she made it through with no warning, I will never understand. Tess and I were always inordinately close, and now without talking about it, she seemed to have an uncanny sense of when to move in to comfort and when to stay back and just let me put one foot in front of the other. That is just an unbelievable quality to have in a person. I think that that's one of the hardest, like second to being the one grieving is being close to the person grieving and like knowing how to be helpful. Yeah, her mom sounds like such a sweetheart, and she like ends up moving in with Betty because the two of them are just on their own. Yeah. So she jumps back into work after a period of mourning. She's in a show called Mama's Family. And then she finally gets on her third attempt at the opportunity to be the first ever female MC of a game show. The show is called Just Men. And she tries to describe it. The format was seven celebrity men, actors, sports figures, musicians, whoever, would write down their answers to a silly given question. For example, do you have a quick temper? Two competing female contestants would try to predict those answers. Each girl would choose one of the men and would have 60 seconds to ask him yes or no questions. Based on what she had learned about him, she would try to guess his response to the original question. If she was right, she got a set of car keys. Whichever girl wound up with the most keys won and had the chance to pick one of the keys to try to start a new car on stage. If it started, it was hers. If not, she returned on the next show. She goes, as games go, it was almost as absurd as it sounds, but the fun was in the ad-lib responses and the way the men reacted to each other. She said, the viewers were enthusiastic, but we lasted only 13 weeks. The reason we were canceled is funnier, I think, than the show ever dreamed of being. Grounded at home for a couple of days with a bad cold, the chairman of NBC had a chance to watch the show and absolutely hated it. (laughs) That chairman, you will remember, was one Grant Tinker. So, I mean, I guess he's not perfect. He canceled her. But at any rate, we were off the air by the time I got nominated for an enemy. For an enemy. For an enemy. So she ended up winning an Emmy for the show that was canceled. Yes. I also just want to add this story. She talks about grieving and all the friends that were there for her. And she says Lucille Ball, who was one of her good friends, was convinced that the cure for anything was backgammon and that she would go over. And Lucille was so into backgammon that she would just play both sides. So it's like, to this day, Betty doesn't know how to play backgammon because she would just be like, well, what you would do is this. And she's like, she never let me play. <laughs> it does sound like a fun cure for grief, to be honest. I feel like to like sit there while your friend plays backgammon against herself, I'd be like, well, <laughs> this is exactly what I needed. <laughs> anyway, so tell them what comes next. Then a script comes across her desk for a little show called The Golden Girls. Ever heard of it? I fucking love this show. I mean, and it's so crazy it got picked up. And I can't even back then, she couldn't believe that a story about four older women would be primetime TV. But she had originally been cast as Blanche the Slut. She was originally cast as Blanche the Slut, but then they switched her and she was so upset. She's like, I wanted to be Blanche the Slut so fucking badly, 
But they were like, you can't play another like man hungry babe on television. Like you can't do this again because everyone's going to think that you're like a real slut. And she's like, oh boy. That had been the basis of her character on the Mary, Mary Tyler Moore show. So they switch her. She didn't know how to play Rose, but they said she is not dumb, just totally naive. She believes everything she is told and in her innocence always takes the first meaning of every word. And then it clicked for her and she was like, okay, let's hit it. I mean, they had an incredible time on the show. It was an enormous hit out the gate. She was really nervous because it was touted around as like the one to watch. And she's like, well, I mean, after the series of Betty White shows, some of which had been the one to watch, that doesn't mean that much. But it was, it turns out, the one to watch. The first week it premiered, it actually knocked the Cosby show out of the top spot and then came in below it. But I feel like for that premiere to knock the Cosby show down a peg is pretty huge. So their very first year, it wins an Emmy for Outstanding Comedy Series, and she wins for Best Actress, which is tough because they were all nominated. And she said the next day she came in, and everybody was, like, whispering congratulations outside of the studio because I guess it was a little bit awkward. Yeah, and then over the next few years, they all got nominated for the first several years, and they all ended up winning a Best Actress trophy. And so then she said after that we would celebrate. It was not awkward anymore. We were all getting Emmys. It was fine. Eventually, the show came to an end because Rue McClellan wanted to move on by season seven, which is understandable. She was like, I'm out of here. And it's funny because Betty's like, there was no thought of doing it with someone else or removing her. It'd be like a table with three legs. But then they go on to talk about how the Golden Palace was the concept of, well, we'll marry Rue off. And then... Yeah, they were like, well, we can't do Golden Girls without B. Arthur, but we can do a different show that is still golden and slightly different without her. Oh, yeah. Fuck B. Arthur. I meant, Sorry. But then that show just doesn't go anywhere. And that's sort of where the book ends. It kind of wraps up with just her being like, anyway, back to that super highway. I don't know. She's like, it's coming. We're on it. The info pike, if you will, is coming on a pace, ready or not, and is enveloping us even as the arguments continue about how to handle it. The interactive highway is already here and represents the coming together of video, computer, telephone, and cable technology. Once the battle over turf rights are resolved or legislated, it's only a matter of getting access to enough homes to start making a difference in how we entertain, educate, and clothe ourselves. Or buy stamps. Or get our news on demand. Or order tickets. I mean, she's dead right. Or choose dinner from menus on request. Or whatever we can dream up. Not just us. The race to hook up audiences to interactive TV is global. In Europe, Japan, and the United Kingdom, tests of systems are already underway. All right. I don't, it's so cute. It does remind me of like if my grandma went to like a lecture series and came out and she's like, this is what I learned. I mean, it's just very cute. You're like, you're right. She talks about how she in interviews is asked what she hasn't accomplished yet that she'd want to accomplish. And she said she wanted to do a great romance. So then she did a movie with Leslie Nielsen that was a romance. And then she's like, okay, and now I've done it. Now I've done everything I want to do. Yeah, she goes, so I got my love story. Now when an interviewer asks if there's something I haven't done and I always want to do, I can just say, nope. <laughs> I mean, may we all die with that. Like, I know. What a, like, I just the fact that she's like, I did it all. And this was like almost 30 years before the actual end of her career. I love this part at the end. She says, if you're still with me, many thanks for your perseverance. This will be a good spot to tidy up loose ends and draw this epic to a close. I will stop. <laughs> but some of the ends will have to stay loose as they are still pending. Soon I'll be going to Atlanta to shoot a Hallmark Hall of Fame movie, The Lost Valentine, that will finish in time for me to start the second season of my latest series, Hot in Cleveland. And I was floored to learn that my Saturday Night Live gig has earned an Emmy nomination. This all sounds like such an ego trip, but please don't take it that way. I'm simply sharing my delight and amazement that I'm still being dealt in, and my gratitude for your support through the years has made it possible. As long as this ride keeps going, I'll be on it, and I hope you will be too. Now, I will let you up, and here's a promise. I will not write Here We Go Again again. Many thanks, Betty White, August 2010. So do you have any final thoughts, Ash? I just think Betty White is a really 
sweet lady, but also a deeply impressive lady. And I am happy that we as a planet got to know her. Yeah, this it reminded me of Elvira's, not just because it was like a woman, like an older woman writing it, but there was this sense of like, if you never stop fighting for yourself, there is happiness to be had. Do you know what I mean? And your happiness might not look like the picture of happiness that everyone assumes Mm -hmm. and has prescribed for like the general population. I also kept thinking about, you know, when women don't want to have children and people are like, well, who's going to take care of you when you're old? I don't know. I think Betty White is such an, like an example of a life filled with so much fulfillment and joy and love like this. Yeah. I mean, we had to like drop them cause they got kind of tedious, but it's just story after story of vacation with her friends, the people who were there for her Dinner dinners. Parties. I mean, it's, she just has so much fun and so many people who love her. I mean, the story about Grant coming every day to the hospital and being there for her when he died, when her husband died, like she is just so loved and fulfilled and got to do everything she wanted. And it, it didn't necessarily include a husband or children. I mean, it did include, there was one husband that she like truly loved. Yeah, but like that wasn't necessary to the happiness. Yeah, it was like an added bonus once she had like figured out her shit. I don't know. She just like never took herself out and it kept working. And And she never took anything for granted, which I think is really nice. I'm just like, I'm happy someone lived their dream life from top to bottom. (laughs) Yes. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. I love you so much. I'll see you hopefully Thursday at Nikki's Unisex. And if not, thank you so much to our five-star reviewers. Thank you so much to Claire Bear seventeen seventy five. You are the cutest little bear, and I would let you maul my campsite any day. Thank you, Mochi ten seventeen. What a delicious after dinner treat! Thank you. This is wonderful. It really is. No, you are wonderful. You really are. Thank you, Pope Francis. Listen, I don't know what popes do, but you've got my vote. Thank you, T Max eight. I am a motherfucking Maxinista for you. Thank you, Very L. Well, you are very W to me. Thank you, Tiger Lover 09. If you're a tiger lover, I'm a tiger lover. Thank you, Carol Eats Crayons. I would bake you a cake of crayons. Thank you, Ra1246. I am cheering for you too. Thank you, Bob Sherman 3737. What about Bob? I always say, Bob's great. Thank you, Olivia Shoulders. You have got the most perfect shoulders I've ever seen. Thank you, the Beha. Listen, me and the Bay Hive are behind the Beha. Thank you, Michelle Copeland, 88. I would do a figure eight for you. Thank you, McKin Meg. The people were begging for some more Meg. Thank you, Llama Del Rey. I hope you get plenty of hay for dinner. Thank you, Ray Cello. They call you Mellow Cello because you're just the chillest and the best. Thank you, Karina Nur. Thanks for carrying this review through. Thank you, Always Forgetting. I'm so happy you remembered to review. Thank you, LJS1387. I appreciate you 1,387 times. Thank you, Greedy Grinch. Well, you don't seem greedy to me. In fact, this made my Christmas. Thank you, Car Chuck. I appreciate you and how strong you are chucking cars around. Thank you, Jojo9710. The other Jojo said, leave, get out. But I say, please stay. Thank you, Fiddleus. I love when you play the fiddle for us. Thank you, Jesse Speaks. I appreciate you for speaking this beautiful review. And that is all for this week. Thank you guys so much. I love you. See you next week.